the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Heavenly Father, as we now come to your word, we approach it and we treat it with solemnity, with severity, with honor. May we understand the beauty and the grace that we hold in our hands. This paper, the app that we have on our laps. What a powerful thing to be in a place where we can have your word, where we can read it, where we can access it, where we can be sheltered at home, not allowed to go to church and yet still hear it preached and expounded through the internet. Father, you are an amazing God and you have allowed us to live in an an incredible time. And I pray now that as we continue to live stream that those who are listening and those who usually do but cannot this morning, I pray that we would not get weary of worshiping from home, but that we would continue to be fully engaged, to have our hearts full, to worship you as you deserve. doesn't matter, Lord, whether it's in our living rooms, in a school cafeteria, or in a hotel banquet room. You do not change and you are worthy. And so now as we continue our series and looking at your sovereignty and ownership of the church and how we have a responsibility in it as well, I pray that you would teach us, that you would grow us, that you would help us to focus on you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we again find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, in a series entitled, Whose Church Is It Anyway?, as you see right there. We're at part two, and we're looking at seven realities to remember to keep the right mindset about the church. And I began last week by answering that question, whose church is it? Because we see that it is indeed God's church, that is, good theology, that is, good doctrine. But at the same time, it's not wrong or sinful or theologically incorrect to say, well, that's my church, that's the church I attend. It's not grammatically wrong either. And it's a good reminder when we say that, that we have a sense of ownership, or we should have a sense of ownership in the church. We should be serving, we should be praying, we should be reaching out to people. I do want to clarify, even as we ended last Sunday, I uh, talked about uh, when we might be able to meet again and explain that I believe that we can still submit to the scriptures and obey the scriptures in submitting to our government in not allowing churches to meet yet, as well as to submit to God's command to worship and to not forsake the assembling of believers together. However, that is in part because we are offering small groups and men's groups and women's groups. 
And so, on a practical level, I would encourage you to not forsake the assembling of believers and attend one of those groups. But at the same time, we are reminded that in the ownership of the church, in understanding that you don't just attend church, you are the church. Grace Church of the Bay Area is your church, whether you are an officially a member or not. Whether you've been attending for years before shelter in place or you just found us online in the past four or five weeks or even this Sunday. If this is considered the church that you will regularly attend, you are part of this church and you need to attend it. Not just click on start live stream, not just to sit in a chair when we meet again, but to fellowship, to be a part of it, to serve, to be served to be known by the people in the church, to know people in the church. And we've seen this idea unpacked already in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, and I want to read that passage for you again that we started last week and we'll finish this week. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Again, we have been looking at seven realities to remember to keep the right mindset about the church. And the first one, we saw three last week. The first one we saw was the agents of salvation. I just want to review these first three before we continue on. The first was the agents of salvation. And we saw that in the beginning of verse 5, where he writes, What then is Apollos and what is Paul, servants through whom you believed? These men, Paul and Apollos, were the means by which the Corinthians heard and accepted the gospel. Paul first preached to them and started the church He was there for 18 months, and then Apollos followed as their next pastor. And he brings this up, Paul does, because he's addressing the Corinthians' sinful worldly thinking, which is displayed in the extolling and even revering of these men, creating factions within the church based on them and others. And Paul dispels this thinking, Paul rebukes this thinking, even though it is significant that they led the Corinthians to Christ, Paul says, we were merely servants. An almost derogatory term in the Greco-Roman world, but a noble one in the context of Scripture. It would have referred to the, for the Romans as a farmhand, a water boy. Significant, sure, to the functioning of a farm, but definitely not a position to look up to or strive after. Definitely not a position that you would go to the great uh, uh, schools of that day under these great learned men only to become a farmhand. And that's what Paul is saying, though. We're just farmhands. We're just servants. We are nothing. Don't revere us now. Don't revere or worship us after we have died. And then Paul elaborates on this in the second point we saw, the appointment of service. In the end of verse 5, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. And what Paul is saying here is, sure, we led you to Christ, but we were merely doing what God assigned us to do. We were just doing our part. There's nothing special. 
just doing what I was supposed to do with great joy, with great privilege, without, you didn't have to twist my arm to do it. It wasn't a burden, but I was doing what I was supposed to do. You know, these days uh, with uh, the coronavirus, we applaud and we show our gratitude to our healthcare workers, the frontline workers, as well we should. And every one of them that I have thanked that belong to our church respond by saying things like, well, I'm just doing my job. Well, everyone's got a role to play. None of them has said, you better thank me, worship me, revere me. There's there's no place in our society or in our church to, to look at these doctors and nurses and say, look at such a good job they're doing. I am of Jocelyn, I am of Agnes, I am of Julie, or I am of Amy. No. They would say, I'm, I'm just doing my part. If I take care of those who have COVID-19, I'm only doing so because I was assigned to that department. I was assigned to that patient only, as Paul says, the hospital gave opportunity to each one. And what Paul is saying is Paul and Apollos are simply being faithful. It just so happened that Paul was called to be an apostle and a church planter. And it was only because of God's choice that Apollos was their pastor. In the same way, it just so happens that you have your specific unbelieving co-workers within your circles to evangelize. It is only because of God's sovereign choice that you have been brought to GCBA and have the gifts that you have and so serve. Be faithful to the one who is in control. Be faithful to the one who has placed you where you are. Be faithful to the one who has given you those abilities and those talents and those opportunities. Well, the third reality to remember to keep the right mindset about church that we saw last week was the activity of success. We saw this in verse 6. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. And this is the activity of success. Again, Paul is not disregarding the privileged responsibility and role that he had, but he acknowledges, as we need to, that the success of the church is because of God. It is due to God. It belongs to God, and only God can do it. The illustration from last week was that no matter how well you plant and water a seed, you cannot create life. You cannot cause life or growth. And in the church, this is true too. You cannot create new life. You cannot make someone a Christian. You cannot make someone grow. Faithful, be faithful, yes. But then let God handle the results. It's a partnership, if you will. And remember, we're not talking about success in the world's eyes, whatever that may be. The size of our church building, the number of attendees, the talent of the band, the money coming in, the number of viewers in the bottom of your app right now. We're talking about success in the eyes of God. Fitting that the one who causes the growth is also the one who defines the growth. The one who causes the success is also the one who defines the success. Remember, it's not about in your evangelism, just as one example. It's not about how many converts you make. It's about how faithfully, how God-honoringly you preach the gospel. It's not about how many people sit in the chairs that you 
disinfect and open up. It's about how you do it and how well you do it and how excellently do it, which involves the right heart attitude. And so we saw the first of three realities to remember to keep the right mindset about the church, the agents of salvation, the appointment of service, the activity of success, and now the fourth, the accreditation of significance. The accreditation of significance. We see this in verse 7. Let me read that for you again. 1 Corinthians 3, 7. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. In case what Paul said at the end of verse 6 was not clear enough, he says, listen, Corinthians, let me spell it out for you. I am nothing. Apollos is nothing. But God is something. And what this means for the Corinthians in their context is this. Stop fighting over the people whose tasks are nothing in comparison to what God has done. Focus on God, Paul says. Swear your allegiance and save your reverence for Him. Why? Because everything we do is from Him. Everything significant we are is from Him. In other words... He's the one who saves and sanctifies. And as far as the church is concerned, anything we do comes out of the fact that you are saved and sanctified. The argument that Paul is making is that whether it's someone as influential as Paul or someone as insignificant as a church janitor, we are all equally insignificant and equally dispensable. Any and all significance must be accredited to God. Again, men are nothing, but God is something. And if all men are nothing, and only God is something, then it stands to reason that God is everything. Even the Greek grammar with which Paul writes, the word God is placed in an emphatic position emphasizing and focusing on what we should emphasize and focus on. Well, since this is true for the Corinthians, Paul is saying once again that there is no place for jealousy, for strife, and division. To put it another way, what Paul is emphasizing is that there is no place for the flesh. And if the great apostle Paul is nothing, then what am I? And if the great Apostle Paul is nothing, then what are you? You know, often in evangelism, the stress is unduly placed on the preacher. I find that most often the person placing the stress on the preacher, the evangelizer, is the evangelizer himself. I'm sure you do this. This is where the fear of man can creep in. This is where the feelings of inadequacy can creep in. Because you feel like the success is up to you. You feel like you are the significant one in that conversation. But when you realize that it's God's message and thus God who causes the growth, then the burden is lifted. 
the I'm just the messenger mentality is very apropos here. But in the same vein, we need to see this in all of our service and ministry, not just evangelism. You see, God is the one who called you, assigned you, who works through you. Let's not forget that Paul, despite God's sovereignty, worked hard. He worked hard to do what he did. Enduring all sorts of hardship from heartache to backache and everything in between. So please do not take this, the fact that God is in charge and God is the one who is significant. Don't take this as an excuse not to serve and get involved and when you do, to avoid excellence and hard work. Avoid what we call the let go and let God mentality. We must strive, we must fight, we must run, we must work, we must serve. But know that God is the one who is in charge. And what a great reminder to have faith for the results in our ministry as we look at our weaknesses and our failures and our inadequacies to be able to trust God for the results, but also to look to God for accountability, to diligence. In other words, the fact that God assigns us our ministry and has charge over the growth is a source of both trust for the results and accountability for diligence. I'll say that again. The fact that God assigns us our ministry and has charge of the growth is a source of both trust for the results and accountability for diligence. And so, remember, You are nothing, but it's a good nothing. It's not like your boss or a manager or even a more successful coworker coming to you and snubbing his nose at you and saying, you're nothing. And kind of kicks his dirt at you and walks away. No, this is a good nothing. It is nothing because God is something. Because God is everything. And because of that, we can worship Him. He doesn't snub His nose at us. He doesn't walk away. He walks beside us. He loves us. He gives us significance in His kingdom and in His eyes. And so remember, the proper accreditation of significance. Fifthly, I want to give you the alliance of scope. The Alliance of Scope. Let's move on to verse 8. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. Let's stop there. Whether you're the planter or the waterer or whatever your role is, and you do have a role, we are all one. And what this means is that we all have the same goal, the same aim, the same motivation. And what's more, the power for our work is identical. God's glory, God's work, God's power. And in case, in the case of Paul's analogy, if nobody planted, watering would be useless. There's no use teaching doctrine if nobody's listening. But also, if nobody waters, the planting would prove to be fruitless, pointless. We're all in this together. We are all one. The problem was that the Corinthians were 
putting each other, uh, putting each person rather in different categories. They were uh, taking Paul and Cephas and, and Christ and Apollos and they were standing back like a, like a child in, in front of a ca- candy counter, a candy display, trying to figure out which one was best, trying to figure out which one they wanted to get to take home. They evaluated each minister. Which one do I want to be aligned with? But in reality, they were all one. Paul lumps all who practice biblical ministry into one category. Servant. And we know that the roles are different. Plant, water, sing, teach, organize, feed, whatever it may be. But in purpose and aim, there is a singularity that is found in all servants and all Christians. God's glory. And when you place this concept in the world, and remember, this, the, the long section we saw in, in Paul talking about God's wisdom versus the wisdom of the world. If you place this concept, we are all one in the world, or try to align it with the world's thinking, it falls apart. This only works in the church because of the sovereignty and worth of God. Think about it. Everyone in your company may theoretically desire the success of the company because that means job security, big bonuses. But many would leave if a better job with a better pay came along. Some want self-promotion within that company. Others just want to cruise by. They don't care about a raise. They are happy just paying the bills. And still others grew up their whole lives wanting to work for that company and truly do just want to extol the brand. Everyone has a different purpose, but probably nobody, no matter how many people are in your multinational company, probably nobody puts in overtime with the goal of making the CEO more famous except maybe the CEO. I remember a former member of our church who worked for a very uh, well-known startup company, IPO'd and, and skyrocketed on the stock market and then started to tank. And he told me at the meeting of the founder and CEO, he says, hey, hang in there. We know that it's not about pay, but you guys just want to work for a great company. And here were all these people who could no longer afford their mortgage, barely afford their rent, couldn't buy the home that they could have just a few months before because of their stock options. And he came back and he said, nobody thinks that way. We don't have money now. We're not just going to stay here and not be able to pay the bills because we want to work for a good company. See, this just doesn't work when you try to align it with worldly wisdom. But in the church, we all do our part because we want to make God more famous. This in turn leads to more influence in the world, more salt and light, saved lives. A functioning, thriving church because we are all serving. And only in the church and in God's plan Will you ever see such clarity, focus, and alliance in scope to the degree that we are all willing to be nothings in our different roles to make him something? This is so important. Because 
we know this, right? We would all say that our ultimate goal is to glorify God. How we do that, how we are assigned to do that will vary. Even those of us who are married or have children, it will vary based on who our spouses are, how we serve them, whether they're believers or not, whether we're husband or wife, what our circumstances are, whether we have kids who are grown up, whether we have grandkids, whether we have special needs kids, whether we had handicapped kids. That's all going to change, but the goal is all the same, to glorify God. But I, I would say that, as I mentioned earlier, it doesn't work when you try to take the wisdom of the world and even how we as Christians properly approach the world sometimes, you take that into the church, it does, just doesn't work. Right? If you're humble and you say, I'm just going to get my work done, I don't care about rising up in the company, I'm going to do it excellent, excellently and for the glory of God. But when you take that mentality and you take it into your ministry as a, just an attendee of a church, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna glorify God. I'm gonna be engaged. I'm gonna get good night's sleep on Saturday night. I'm totally be, be focused on Sunday morning, but that's all I'm gonna do because I really don't uh, care about being part of a small group or I don't care about encouraging other people or being encouraged. I would say that, yeah, you have a singularity of focus, but you're kind of drifting away from being the one because it's, it is you're having the right heart attitude in everything you do. But to say that you glorify God just in the certain things that you do doesn't really make sense because to glorify God means to strive for everything that he has told us to do. And, and you can't take one level of obedience or one area of obedience and, 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 and make it compete with another. That, that's just not how the scriptures work. That's not how the 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 christian life works you you can't say well i'm i'm excelling so much in in trying to be a, a a good husband that i have no time to go to church or you know whatever it may be right we are commanded to do all of it and we can do all of it but it's going to take effort and it's going to take an understanding that we are all in this together to glorify God. That is our one cause, one goal, one aim. But when anything trumps the glory of God, family, parenting, money, job, any of those things, even, even flipping around, Right, the, the things that look good on the outside, but they they're pursued for selfish reasons. Right? Yeah, I want I want to preach, but not for God's glory and the edification of His people. But I want to I want to become famous. I want to be on the radio someday. I want to I want to be trending on YouTube. Well, as far as you can tell, we're all same goal, but I don't have the same goal anymore. And my point is, is even in good things, being a good dad, being a good mom, being a good wife, being a good pastor, being a good child, being a good servant, being a good prayer warrior, even those things can, can twist your aim, your goal. And even though what you're doing looks spiritual, it's pharisaical. It's legalistic, right? I have to do this to the neglect of this. 
right? I have to read this to, to the neglect of my husband. I have to go and serve this individual to the neglect of my children. I need to buy this to help my kids be more happy and have way more screen time than they should have already to the detriment of giving to the church or supporting missionaries who trust me under COVID-19 are struggling way more than you are right now. It all works together, right? Singularity of focus. And this also reminds us to be encouraged by others. Right? There, there's no clicking on and, and live streaming and thinking, man, am I the only one who's getting this? Am I the only one who wants to do this? Am I the only one who's being convicted? No, you know, you can look at everyone and you can say, hey, are you, uh, I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, you are good. Me too. Me too. Glorify God. Let's do this. How are you doing? Good. I'm going to learn a little from you. I'm going to learn a little from you. Let's all do this together. Synergistic effect. And we explode onto the world. Now, again, it is important that the particulars and what we do does matter. Especially how we do it. And this leads us to our sixth reality to remember to keep the right mindset about church. The appropriation of severance. The appropriation of severance. Look at the end of verse 8. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. This is talking about future reward for our service. But that does not come until the job is done. When is the job done? When you die or when the Lord returns. It is our severance pay, if you will. Not until you see God face to face is your job done and will this reward be given to you. In fact, as we'll see in a minute, there is a specific time when that reward is given to all people. Now, there's a few things to point out about this future reward. While the first half of verse 8 speaks of the unity in our various labors, this second half emphasizes the diversity of our ministries as seen in the diversity of reward. Everyone's reward is going to be different, and this is based on our work, on our labors as Christians, as seen in the term his own. This describes both the reward and the ministry, his own. Now, the word reward in ancient Greek, as well as today, usually means like wages or pay, salary, payment for services rendered. Those would be the normal commercial senses of the word. But here, in this context, the pay or reward, Paul is using to emphasize his point that all of us are responsible to to God, and God is the one who determines the value of our efforts. Not the world, not even the church. You can see how bad it is that the Corinthians are putting themselves as the ones who determine Paul or Paulus's or Peter's worth, exalting those people one against the other. But Paul makes it clear that the wages are determined by God and they are based on our labor. Note that your individual future reward, which will be different than mine, which will be different than every other Christian, The reward is based not on our successes or results, but on our labor, on our work. 
What this means is not necessarily how much you have done, but how much of your work, what you do, is done for the Lord. Only your work done for the Lord will be rewarded. But also, the reward is based on diligence and obedience. It can't be based on success because we just saw that God is in charge of the success, the growth. But, for example, your reward is not based on how many people get saved through your evangelism, for example, but how faithfully you evangelize. And it's not about how many people come to your small group, but how faithfully you lead that small group. How well you prepare, how diligently you do it, how well, how much you love the people who come. The reward is not based on how many people here you lead worship, but how faithfully you lead those who show up and how much you lead with integrity and holiness of heart. This applies to everything. Not just the official upfront ministries of the church, which I have mentioned. It, it could also be the example of, it's not how many people eat the cookies you brought to church, but how faithfully, how lovingly you baked them. Did you do this just to promote this uh, bakery business you want to start? Or did you do this just because you can't wait to hear people praise you about how good of a baker you are? Or did you do it because you just want to serve and you, you love people and you can't wait to see the smile on that child's face and help people to, to be able to worship better because they're not distracted by hunger pangs? And this is not just even uh, uh, what we would call ministry. Your, your work, your cleaning your house, your mowing the lawn. Do you do those things to the glory of God? In all of those examples, when I say it's about how faithfully you do it, faithfully means with the right heart attitude, with the goal of glorifying God, doing it out of love, sacrificially, etc. You know the list. You know what God is looking for. Uh, recently read in my quiet times this past week about David, King David's sin with Bathsheba. And in the psalm that he writes, in Psalm 51, the psalm of his repentance after Nathan confronts him on the sin, he makes a point that we would heed well. And his, in his uh, specific context, it was about physical sacrifices. He says, I would sacrifice. I would make sacrifices of, of, of oxen and bulls. But that's not what you want. You want a, a contrite heart. You want a repentant heart. You want a heart that honors you. And then when I have that, the psalmist goes on to say, and I think this is the part we often forget. After I have that, then I will offer up sacrifices to you at the altar. It has to be about the heart attitude. And of course, this is holistic thinking. Like I said before, even though you desire to glorify God through uh, through your side projects or your hobbies or you're going out and visiting a million different people, it can't be to the detriment of others, the, the more prioritized uh, commands that you have in your family and the church. And so we have to do these things with the right heart attitude. And I would caution you. I would caution you. Again, God is not just looking at what you have done. He's not looking at numbers. He looks at your heart and your actions, actions that are backed by a right heart attitude. 
And so don't think that to avoid legalism, you just have to have a worshipful heart and do nothing. No, reward is still going to be based on what you do, but with the right heart attitude. But back to what I want to caution you about. Oftentimes, we do things, and what we do on paper has biblical reasoning for it. But that wasn't your true reason. Look, we we can, except for, for blatant sin, all of our extracurricular activities that are, can I say, neutral or gray, we can find a verse and say, well, I want to do this because it glorifies God because it helps me do such and such. It helps me relax because then I can focus more on church. It, it, it does this because it's going to help my family and God wants me to be a, a, a good, a good uh, faithful son or daughter to my parents. But if our heart is still selfish, there's no reward for that. You see, so many times we do that, don't we? Right? If, uh, if I, as your pastor, were to ask you, well, why are you doing that? You would give me a verse. Well, you know, uh, the Lord wants me. But you know that wasn't the initial reason. You're just covering it up. You're just trying to make it look good. You're making positive excuses for something that had a selfish motive. And I want to caution you about that. Now, if you truly start with a selfish motive and scramble to find a verse to justify what you're doing and then truly are motivated by that scripture, that's called repentance. More power to you. But if it's just to sound good, that's called legalism. That's called deception. You're deceiving yourself. And you're deceiving whoever you're talking to. There is a reward someday. And we need to understand that, that the joy in serving is to glorify God. And the motivation of reward is should be secondary. Now this idea of God giving to each Christian and non-Christian according to their work is found throughout the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27 it says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Paul quotes this in Romans 2.5 and elaborates that this applies to both reward for the godly and wrath for the ungodly. Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, the same principle. And several other passages uh, use the same principle to speak of the wicked receiving their just punishment according to their deeds. We even have a picture of this time of reward in the future day in Revelation chapters 2, 11, 20, and 22. Four different chapters speak of this. And it's, it is in Revelation that we get a more specific timing of this reward. But the bottom line is that we are to take heed because a reward is coming and there will be a reward based on your efforts. Well, We're looking at seven realities to remember to keep the right mindset about the church. We've seen this morning the accreditation of significance, the alliance of scope, the appropriation of severance, and finally the assets of sovereignty. The assets of sovereignty. Verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. This is a good summary and conclusion of what Paul's been saying 
in this passage. First, we are reminded of the oneness in ministry. He says Paul and Apollos and basically all believers, but in this context, he's talking about himself and Apollos, are fellow workers. Again, speaking of the equal relationship between all of God's workers, there's a unity and a fellowship, a oneness in our labor under and for God. The objects of their ministry is the church at Corinth, and he says they are the field, specifically God's field. They are God's building. And this verse, verse 9, is a transitional statement, and it connects the passage we looked at over the past two Sundays, as well as the next passage, which we'll see starting in June, next week being our Q&A. And it speaks uh, next week of the foundation of Christ and building upon that. Uh, But it also refers back to all we have seen in this passage. And as a field, they are a work in progress. As in any field, there will be a variety. There will be growth. There is fruit. As a building, they are a corporate structure, a community. They are not multiple buildings doing their own thing. There's no place, Paul says, for individualism. The the very individualism that they are exhibiting and that he is confronting. But here's the emphasis of verse 9. Even without knowledge of Greek grammar, you see it. The emphasis is very clear by the repetition. Gods, second, gods, thirdly, gods. God's workers, God's field, God's building. In everything, in other words, everything involved with the church, including the church itself, belongs to God. We are His assets. We belong to Him. And so, we belong to the Sovereign. What a privilege this is. To know of the oneness and the privilege of our ministry, and to know that we, as those ministers, whatever level, if you want to put it that way, your ministry may take. Whatever, uh, however big the sphere of influence, What a privilege to know that it is God's work. You belong to God. And the people you are ministering to, the church, is God's field. And where he is bringing about growth and life and fruit and adding to its numbers. The building which works together many different bricks upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, as we will see. But all of us on that foundation part of that same structure. We belong to God. You don't belong to your parents. You don't belong to the United States of America. You do not belong to your political party. You do not belong to your company. You belong to God. What a wonderful truth to know whom it is that we belong to. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about opening up the church. When will the church open? And we understand what they mean, the literal doors of the church. But I hope this passage and these two sermons have reminded you that the church has never closed. You are the church. And we must function as such. 
Don't wait for the doors of churches to open. Continue to function as the church. On the flip side, there's also much talk about the government deeming churches as non-essential. We know we are essential on a spiritual level as well as a physical level. And we get angry. There's people protesting, shaking their fists, saying the church is essential. But on a very practical level, and I'm talking about you as a specific person, looking at your life over the last 24 hours or 24 days. Have you made the church non-essential? Is your heart, your goal, your purpose in life so far from the glory of God that you are essentially non-essential? Are you just in your living room, in your house, and even when we were meeting or when we meet again, just coming and going, not getting to know people, not attending groups, not fellowshipping, not serving, because you understand the very the first level of service is one-on-one, praying, encouraging, rebuking. And you can't do that if you don't know people. Are you a non-essential part of the church? Are you making the church non-essential because you're not doing anything? Does the, does the society really feel it that the churches are, are physically closed? Are you... Sharing the gospel, are you living a light? Are you being a positive, God-honoring influence to people to the point that they think you're essential in their lives? Or are you non-essential and the government of California is right in saying liquor stores and marijuana dispensaries are more essential than the church? Make your life count for God. Do Something. Now more than ever, do you have the opportunity to Zoom, Skype, cell phone, whatever? That's what people are doing. It may, it may have been odd back in January or February, but it's not today. That's the only way you can communicate with Christians or non-Christians. What are you doing? Are you just sitting around twiddling your thumbs? When are we going to meet again? When are we going to meet again? Do something. You are the church. Not those guys that I met at Grace Church of the Bay Area before shelter in place. You are the church. You. I wish I could reach through that camera and tap every one of you on the shoulder and say you. Because I know. I know that there are some of you who I'm saying this and it's just like water off a duck's back. Not me. Uh, Talking about that guy. Talking about the deacons. The guy who gave me a uh, gave me a, a new visitor bag when I came. It's not me. It can't be me. It is you. You are a Christian. You matter. You are part of the building. You are the church. Serve God. Take ownership of the church. Well, over the past two weeks, we have seen. Seven realities to remember to keep the right mindset about the church. The agents of salvation, the appointment of service, the activity of success, 
the accreditation of significance, the alliance of scope, the appropriation of severance, and the assets of sovereignty. What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reminder of the privilege that we have of being part of God's field, God's building. To have the privilege of ministering, to have a singularity of purpose that not just the actual purpose is foreign to the world, but the singularity is as well. Thank you for your Holy Spirit and your Son that we might know you and have this purpose and know this purpose. May we strive, may we get out of our comfort zones, may we strive and work and serve you with the right hearts. We work so hard that our comfort zone is ministry, that we relax by doing ministry, that our hobby is serving you. Father, forgive us for being so selfish to the point that even how we parent our newborn babies, even how we watch over our adult children or take care of our jobs is so selfish. Trying to appease our own worries, our own concerns, instead of trusting you and glorifying you. Help us to shed the fat, Lord, to get rid of all the things that so easily entangle us, the encumbrances, to gird ourselves so that we might not walk and trip and stumble and do things when it's convenient, but run with endurance. Fight the good fight. Run the good race. And make our lives count for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.